Dear Father, Father, we ask you that you teach us tonight in a way that will uh, clarify deep and wondrous things, things that have uh, puzzled many for many centuries. And uh, Father, we know we're not smart enough and we are not better than those who have come before us. We're simply available to you in a time and in an age when it appears as though you're revealing things. You're making known things that must come to pass soon. And so, Father, we are that privileged generation that lives near the end, privileged to know and understand these things when others did not, and privileged, Father, to experience them, even if they are trials and difficulties. We thank you, Father, for the privilege to be at this point in history. And like those who've come before us, Father, the cloud of witnesses that sets an example of faith for us, we pray, Father, that in our day, with all the challenges we face, that we would be uh, worthy to meet them in obedience and to testify and glorify your na- testify to our faith and to glorify your name among the nations in this special moment in history. So that those who would come to understand these things with us or be interested in them from afar uh, could be motivated by them to know you in faith. And we would be uh, positioned as ministers to them, priests, a royal priesthood, Father, who intercede on their behalf to you by our ministry of the word. We pray, Father, you're preparing us for these moments and that you are not uh, merely tickling our ears, as some would think, with uh, fanciful stories from the Bible, but, Father, rather you are, you are building up men and women of faith to uh, represent you in these things so that we may use them to further your purpose in the kingdom. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's dive back in our study. We are in the section of Ezekiel, commonly known as Ezekiel's War. I should have done this last week. I didn't get a chance, but I want to do it while I'm thinking about it now. How many of you, before we even started any of this, going back, you know, week or go or more, how many of you had ever had not heard of an Ezekiel War? How many? For how many of you is this kind of brand new stuff? And don't be shy. I'm just that's not unusual. Okay, that's good. Maybe half or so. And that's good to hear, frankly, because this is a section in which you find people who are very deep in their knowledge of Scripture really running to a lot in their own way with friends and, you know, in academia and elsewhere because they find it so fascinating to debate some of the intricacies. And we're getting into some of that, as you can see. But I think that interest, in some cases, transcends the purpose of the text. We become more interested in some of those questions of controversy than we do with the very purpose of it existing in the Bible to begin with. And I've not been a part of many conversations where that was the interest. It's always been in the minutia. So we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to get, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We want to see the big picture and we want to understand the details. So that's the approach I'm taking as I teach this, which I think is generally my approach in every case. So if you have a deeper understanding, if you've been in this area before, maybe you have some strong opinions on some of the details. Whether you would perhaps agree with my view or not, let's try to just keep in mind what the big purpose is. Why are these two chapters in the Bible? And for that matter, why does the war exist? Those are questions that are more meaningful to our understanding of of Christ and his purposes in all of this than, for example, simply a debate over timing. So with that said, let's go back to the chart I gave you. These chapters are part of a structure that I have prepared. It's structured, by the way, of my own thinking. I haven't seen anybody else do this, and I don't mean to say it's better or novel. I I just mean I think like this. You know, there's no Bible chapter or verse that's independent of the rest of it. There's something going on around everything in the Bible, and I always want to see what that big thread is because more often than not that gives me a guide in my interpretation. 
If I can't understand the thread, I'm in no position to understand the details within it. And this is the thread, if you want to call it that, the structure that I proposed, that in the chapters 33 through 48, the last part of the book of Ezekiel, you're seeing God prophetically fulfilling all of the promises He gives to His people Israel in both the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. So this is a preview of coming attractions for the sake of Israel, how God brings about everything He said He was going to do for them. And... You notice in the structure I gave here, you start with the covenants promising Israel a king in the line of David who shepherds his people properly. That's 33 and 34. Then an eternal inheritance of land. And that land would be free of competing claims and it would bless Israel. It would have great fruitfulness. That's chapters 35 and 36. Then you would see uh, a national uh, grouping of his descendants, a nation coming and filling in that land. And they would be living in the land in peace without threat, and without enemies. And that's chapters 37 and 38. And then finally, the Lord says, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'll dwell among you, and I will make my glory known to you and to the nations. That's 39 and onward. So knowing that, that gives us some basis for understanding what we're seeing in any given chapter. And now as we go to the next of these chapters, chapter 38, this is the first of two chapters, 38 and 39, that are commonly called Ezekiel's War. But if you notice my structure... They straddle two different topics within the Abrahamic Covenant, as I see it, which helps us understand what their purpose is. It's not as though God just wanted to say something about a coming war because it's scintillating and you thought you might be interested in it, and then he gets back on the main thoughts of the book of Ezekiel. This is right in line with the main thoughts here. But chapter 38 has a different purpose than chapter 39. So chapter 38 is the second half of the nation in its land in peace. Assembled as a nation without threat. And we looked at the opening verses last week of this chapter, including the four competing views that I told you exist within Christendom concerning the timing of the events in this chapter. And I'm going to list them again for the sake that I'm sure there's some in here that weren't here last week, so I'm going to list them again just because I do refer to these things as I go through the teaching. I want you to have the big picture in mind. So I'm not going to try to resolve which of the four is correct in one moment. I'm going to let the text show you, but let me just get them out for you. First, Some would tell you that this war that we're just seeing in chapter 38 never really happens in any literal way. It's just a symbolic story that represents God's ultimate victory over Satan. Then they have a second view that says, oh, this is literal, and it happens in the age before the beginning of tribulation, which would mean today, uh, in, in the times we live now. A third view says, no, it happens, but it happens in the time of tribulation, and that the events of it are part of the destruction of tribulation. And then a fourth view says, it's completely after this age in the kingdom. It's part of the age of the kingdom. So those four are the ones we have on the table. We're going to see which one of those lines up with Scripture. Finally, by way of introduction, let me go back and reread what we studied last week and just quickly summarize it so that we can get back into the heart of the chapter. So we started at the beginning last week, verse 1, and in that we read all the way through verse 8. I'm just going to reread those real quickly. Verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses, and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company, with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, with all its troops, 
Beth, Togamar, with the remotest parts of the north, with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be on guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations, to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. All right, so let's just review the actors real quick. You had Gog of the land of Magog. Now, remember last week we looked at the table of nations coming out of Genesis where we see that these are names given to some of the descendants of Noah, Noah's grandchildren to be specific, and how they distributed themselves after the flood into parts of the world help us understand these place names in a very general way. That is, all the names you see here, by and large, at least in the first group, uh, are names that associate today with Eastern Europe present-day Turkey and up north from Turkey into the Baltics, into Russia. All of that group, it says, were under the command of a man named Gog. Gog is not his name, it's a title, kind of like Pharaoh or Caesar. And he will be also called the Prince of Rosh. Um, So this oracle is being spoken against this man, who rules over the world, at least in that area, has a, a following of sorts, you might say. And in addition to him, he has allies from places... Uh, that include uh, present-day Iran, Persia, Ethiopia, which includes both Ethiopia, Somalia, and Eritrea, and Put is present-day Libya, and some of the other place names you see there in verse 6, those also refer to very northern areas of what would be Asia or East Europe today. If you look at a map then, what we're saying is all of those who come against Israel under this man's leadership, both his own area plus the Allies, are surrounding Israel. The only direction from which you don't see someone coming is from the west, which, as we said last week, is where the water is. That's Mediterranean Sea. So it's a land war only. But from every direction other than that, Israel is being surrounded. The other thing we noticed last week is that the impetus for this is God. The impetus for the war, for the attack, is God himself. God causes these people to assemble. He uses the descriptive phrase of putting hooks in their jaws... The idea is that he hooks them and drags them where he wants them to go. So then in their own volition, in the mind and in the heart of these people, particularly in Gog's mind, it's their own idea. It's what they want to do. But who's truly the providential actor behind the scenes? God. God is determining that this will happen, and he's determining the timing that it will happen. He says in verse 8, After many days you will be summoned. Well, who do you think is summoning? Okay. That was the other thing we noticed. Then we notice that the army relies on horses, literally, not symbolically. Secondly, the weaponry is very rudimentary. I told you that based on what we're going to see in chapter 39. In chapter 39, you learn that they carry wooden clubs, wooden spears, wooden shields, wooden helmets, wooden bows, and wooden arrows. In fact, everything used in the battle, by and large, is made of wood. Finally, notice the attack will come against a land that has been, quote, restored from the sword. That's a Hebrew word that means numbers of things, but my interpretation here is it's a land that has been restored from the sword in the sense that they don't use swords anymore. Restored from the need of it. They're defenseless. They are a land without military weaponry whatsoever. And why would Israel be a land without military weaponry? Why have they been restored from that need? Because verse 8 goes on to say that the inhabitants of the land are living securely. They have no need for weaponry. They have no expectation of attack. Nothing's ever threatened their security. 
Furthermore, the inhabitants have been placed in their land, it says here, from out of many nations. That's the regathering. We know that it is coming. And they are all living on the mountains of Israel. And it, notice here it says that they are all there. Verse 8, all of them. To a land that was continually prior to that, continually a wasteland, now occupied by all Israel. With those clues, let's move on to the rest of the invasion. Verse 9. He says, you will go up, speaking again to Gog, you will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud, covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind, and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go up against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods and who live at the center of the world. Sheba, Dedan, and the merchants of Tarshish, with all its villages, will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day, when my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the remotest parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. Now let's take a look at what's going on here. In verse 9, you read here first about a, a movement. You have this vast army. And the people are so great, they cover the ground like a cloud. Now, that verse is actually serving as a bit of an overview or summary of what you're reading in the verses that follow. So, it's essentially an introduction, I know, a topical sentence. And then what you see in the verses immediately after is the description in detail of that topical sentence, of that overview, beginning in verse 10. But you notice, this is not a war of military technology. This is not a, a war of what the military would call force multiplication. This is brute force. Mano on mano. This is human capital being put into battle. The, the strength of this army is fundamentally about the number of people that are being thrown at the enemy. All right? Beginning in verse 10, you start to see that. First, as always... It starts with a thought entering the evil mind of some man. No war has ever started differently. And that man, specifically Gog, devises a plan to invade Israel. And the plan is fundamentally formed on the basis of opportunity and greed. Opportunity and greed. First, he sees opportunity. In the text it says he notes that the land of Israel is entirely unguarded. He notes that the land is at rest. Now the word in Hebrew literally means uh, quiet. So the land is quiet. It's unsuspecting. It's, it's also unwalled. No bars, he says. No gates. Now look, by nature, a wall in any time of history, whether now or whenever you go, it always serves the basic purpose of, of a defensive measure. It's a protective measure intended to defend against an enemy attack. It's an inherently defensive measure. Okay, 
So when you have an unwalled place, a village, etc., what that says is you have a complete lack of concern over any enemy. In modern terms, it would be like you build your house without a front door. Not just without a lock. You don't even have a door. In the sense that what you'd be saying if you ever did that was, I have zero concern about anyone walking into my house, taking my possessions, or harming me. So I don't need to bother with the inconvenience of opening and closing my own door. Well, we don't live that way, obviously, but in some day to come, Israel will be in such a state of security, they don't even think of defensive measures, even the most rudimentary defensive measures. And as a result, Gog sees an opportunity to enter the land unchallenged and without anything blocking his path, and moreover, against an unsuspecting people. Think about if you had no door on your house and someone did arrive who had criminal intent, how easy would that be? It would be an invitation to them to walk in the door, wouldn't it? Secondly, Gog's reason to take the attack on is greed. He sees opportunity, and then greed gives him motive, gives him reason to go forward. Notice verse 12. He notices the abundance of the land. There's cattle and goods, and it's all amassed for him. And this chapter, if you remember, is coming immediately after a series of chapters we've already studied that describe the abundance of life in the kingdom. Remember? It's in that same flow. It's in that same context. Here's what the kingdom will be like. Here's the abundance of the kingdom. Here's the blessing of the land. Here's the produce of the land. No famine, remember? The land always doing good for Israel. If you allow that context to guide your thinking and interpretation, which I would strongly advise you should, then you can make better sense out of his interest. Because the abundance of Israel in the kingdom, the Bible says, will be second to none. The land will produce without equal for any other land on the earth, and the people of Israel will be blessed above all other nations on earth. And in that context, it makes sense that God would desire for the spoil of a superior nation's abundance. Right? Furthermore, the text notes that Israel was previously a waste place and that it was inhabited now by people who have been taken from all other nations. And now some would argue that what that's describing is accurately the present-day condition of Israel. And I would say, actually, to a degree, that's true, right? For many years, Israel was a, a wilderness after the Ottoman Empire deforested it. And today, it is flourishing under Israel's industrial nature, under their skill, under their technology, and certainly God's blessing. And, of course, it's been repopulated by Jews who have come from out of the nations. We know that. It's a regathering underway, just as the Bible said would happen. So, yes, you could argue that, to a degree, what Ezekiel is describing is already underway. But it's that degree part that we need to pay attention to. The degree drives your interpretation. And if you look at the degree to which Ezekiel describes these things, it drives your interpretation to a different outcome. Because yes, some of Israel live in the land today, but in this chapter we're told at the time of the invasion, all Israel will live in the land. And yes, the land of Israel is prosperous today, but in this chapter you are told that God is so attracted by Israel's wealth that he is willing to take on the risk of a military invasion. The wealth of Israel today is substantial, but it is not substantial enough to compel nations like Russia or Turkey or Syria or Iran. Those nations have not enough interest in Israel's wealth to risk these invasions because those nations already collectively possess far more wealth than Israel does. And in fact... An invasion by six nations or more to split up the limited resources that are in a land about the size of New Jersey simply does not make strategic sense. 
Now, what we tend to add to that thinking is, well, they hate Israel, they want to destroy Israel, they're anti-Jewish. That is true, but that is not the motivation God says Gog has in the invasion. Gog does not have a motivation that is anti-Semitic. He has a purely financial interest, according to Ezekiel. Beyond those issues, there are other details that tell us this really can't be a war that takes place in our age and in this time. First, there's the issue of Israel being completely unguarded, without walls, without any defenses. That is completely the opposite of present-day Israel. First, they have walls, massive walls running all around their country. If anything, Israel is famous for its walls, not unwalled. Secondly, Israel's defensive forces are the envy of the world. No nation would dare invade Israel in our current day for fear of the reprisal, not to mention nuclear reprisal. And in short, Israel is one of the most defensively fortified nations on the planet. There is really no way, in my estimation, you can square that up with Ezekiel's description of the nation at the time of this invasion. Not unless, I guess, you're prepared to say that something happens between now and when that happens for Israel to fully leave all its defenses aside. I just don't understand how that could happen. Thirdly, Israel of today is not dwelling in quiet, in rest, in peace in their land. Yes, they have established a degree of security, but it is certainly not peaceful. It is not a quiet existence in the land, as is described here. The people of Israel are conspicuously aware of how tenuous their security situation is. And that tension and that worry over security and the need to have to reinforce it continually against attacks from time to time, that is the exact opposite of this description here. Dwelling in peace, in rest, in their land. So in terms of timing, here again, if we're trying to pick the time in history when this happens, every indication we have, if you look at the text plainly, if you don't try to kind of explain it away in some kind of convoluted form, if you just take it at face value, it does not fit our present day. But it does fit another day very, very well. It fits exactly another time in history according to Scripture, and that is the time of the kingdom. Fourthly, we're told that Israel is considered, notice in verse 12, they're at the center of the world. Gog says Israel is at the center of the world. Now certainly Israel lies at the center of the Bible's geography, and it's also the focus of the Christian world. But you could hardly say Israel is the center of the world by most measures, by any international measure that isn't based out of Scripture. Um, Today you would say China or the U.S. or maybe the E.U. is at the center of the world, at least in terms of power or wealth or attention, etc. But in the kingdom, the Bible says Israel, by all those definitions, will be the center of the world. Zechariah 8.20, for example, Zechariah 8.20, Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go. So many people and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Israel will be at the center of the earth and the center of attention in that day. And finally, it's worth noting that not one of the nations that we see here invading with Gog, not one of them is Arab. Now, there's some countries that are traditionally Muslim, but they're not Arab. 
And if an alliance were to form in our age, in this day and time, with the intent of invading Israel, wouldn't we expect at least one Arab nation to join readily into that battle? Wouldn't it be in their own interest to do that? Wouldn't that be what they'd want to do? But none are mentioned here. On the other hand, their absence fits another interpretation perfectly. Because in the kingdom, Ezekiel says that Arab nations will never again threaten Israel, nor will they ever harm Israel. So in the kingdom, we would expect Arab nations to be absent from such an invasion, because God has made that promise to them. Now back in the passage, verse 13, we're told that other nations will inquire. I love this. There's a couple of key verses here that I think, when I've read every commentary I can find on this, they never get any attention. And it's because they don't fit the narrative that the authors in those commentaries are trying to promote. Verse 13, we're told that other nations will inquire of the invaders as they gather on Israel's border and prepare. Sheba, Dedan, those are places in northern Arabia today, uh, directly to the east of Israel. And then you have merchants of Tarshish. Tarshish probably refers to Spain. So what you're thinking here about is people who have traded in ships from Spain, and they're, they're now in the region on their ships. They've kind of come from Tarshish. They're in the Med. That would mean they're probably on the western side, maybe near the Lebanese border. And they have this interesting question. It's not a question that has any answer to it. It seems just as the question is posed. Are you about to invade? Now, that kind of seems like a dumb question, doesn't it? I mean, in other words, you see a huge army massed on a border, you kind of get the point. Why would they ask? And maybe the better answer question is, why would it be recorded in the Bible? Why is that pertinent? Why does God want us to know that they asked that question? The question seems to indicate how out of the ordinary this whole thing is. As if the people who are there in Tarshish and elsewhere have never seen anything like this before. It's a completely foreign thought. Completely new experience. You're going to invade? You're going to try to take their stuff from them? We don't do that. (laughs) Then in verse 14, you hear the Lord's challenge to Gog, and the challenge lies at the heart of my interpretation. The Lord asks rhetorically, Will Gog disrupt the peace that God has given to his people Israel? Now remember last week I told you, that this chapter is part of a two-chapter section in which God is showing Israel how he will fulfill his promise to them under the Abrahamic covenant to establish them as a nation in the land and give them peace in that land. That's what he said that he would do, and this is now the fulfillment of it. And he, in fact, if you remember, at the outset of the millennial kingdom, remember we said he says through Ezekiel he will establish a new covenant with Israel, a peace covenant? He will promise them peace in a new form, a new covenant. But then I also told you last week that if God is to be understood to be faithful to that peace promise, to that peace covenant, then there must be, logically, an enemy, a threat. There has to be an opposition to the peace in order for God to be seen as faithful to the peace, right? I mean, without a threat to Israel's peace, there's no way for God to demonstrate his faithfulness to a peace covenant. It's like God promising he's going to cure you of cancer, but... Until you contract cancer, you can't know that he was faithful to that promise, right? It's that negative space problem. I need negative space to show the positive, right? So God has said to Israel, I'm going to protect you from your enemies during this period of history. In order to show that, he needs an enemy to invade. So what the Lord has said here in verse 14 to Gog is, you, Will you indeed disturb the peace that I have promised to Israel? It's a rhetorical question, and the answer, of course, is no, you will not. But thank you for trying, I needed that. So the Lord ensures that his people will be preserved, and he saves them just as he has promised. So here again, you have the invasion serving 
A very important purpose. But back to my comment at the outset tonight, if you put somebody in a position to tell you the answer to this question, it will go a long way to showing you where their bias is, if they have one, regarding the timing of the incident. Ask them what's the purpose of the war. Why does it happen? Why does it happen when it happens? What's God trying to do through the circumstances of it? He says plainly here what it's about. Demonstrating that Gog and his army cannot disturb the peace of his people Israel. That fits in a period of time in which God has said, I will give you a covenant of peace. And that's what God is doing here. This whole event gives opportunity for God to show that he is faithful. And at the end of verse 14, he says, Gog, and of course Israel, um, will know that they are living securely in the land. That's the implication of what he says. By how he defends them, everyone will come to see. Aha, yes, they are secure. All right, now look at the nature of the warfare. We alluded to this earlier when I talked about the wooden implements and the horses and so on. But look at verse 15 again. He says, The Lord describes the invasion as many peoples on riding horses. Now, the Hebrew word there that's translated as horse, it means horse. (laughs) Has no other meaning. Is not a symbolic meaning for a tank. It's, It's a horse. And there is nothing in the text here that would indicate that it meant something symbolic. The text is speaking plainly. It's speaking literally. Earlier in this chapter, you notice it talked about them having bridles. It talked about the implements of riding a horse. The whole piece of this whole uh, description, this whole narrative, has never varied from a very literal description of what you do when you ride horses. What that says is plain, then. We're looking at a time in history when warfare is so rudimentary that horses are the preferred means of transportation. Once more, if you suppose this battle happens in present day, you have a very difficult time explaining this. You're having to come up now with some narrative, some historical set of things that removes all technology from our everyday experience. That's why some put this in the time of tribulation, because we do know that in that time, life goes to hell in a handbasket pretty quickly. And modern technology, you know, the first thing that's going to stop working is your cell phone towers and your electricity. And after that, it's just, you know, now you're digging in the dirt for roots, you know, to eat. People just go from high level of living to nothing overnight because we have no backup. We don't have any farm in our backyard. We don't have more than a day, you know, a week's worth of food in our house, most of us. Uh, I mean, when things go bad, and I'm not saying we're going to be there for that, but I'm saying that the world will be there for that. So rudimentary life comes pretty quick when you turn off the power and the gasoline and everything else. So you might assume that explains the rudimentary nature of it. The problem is putting these events in tribulation creates other problems which we deal with in chapter 39. But meanwhile, we know it has to be rudimentary. Modern nations mentioned in this prophecy could not possibly expect to prevail against modern Israel if they rode horses into battle, right? The Israeli defense forces are among the most modern, sophisticated in the world, and the armies of Russia, Turkey, Iran, Libya, and even Ethiopia all possess tanks, armored vehicles, aircraft. Why would they leave those things behind and ride horses? It doesn't make any sense, and it's foolish to assume that. So either our interpretation must place these events far back in time, where these things were commonplace, and no one to my knowledge is proposing that this is historical, or... We're talking about something far in advance of where we are, back to a time in the kingdom. And yes, the kingdom age is a simpler age, according to Scripture. Let me read some things for you. Isaiah sixty-six eighteen, Talking about the kingdom, the Lord says, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, Put, 
Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they will declare my glory among the nations. Then they shall bring all of your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, and on camels. To my holy mountain in Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in, a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. That's just one little passage I show you, but the point is you can find this in other places as well. Every mention of the kingdom is agrarian, simple, and without a great deal of technology. For some of us, that's hallelujah, right? Animals will be the primary mode of transportation in the kingdom. And I have a suspicion it's because we're going to find joy in life in ways that our technology today is trying to compensate for lack thereof. We need these tools, we think, to find some meaning in life when if we didn't have sin, life itself becomes all different. And this is, I think, one of the indications of it. Secondly, Isaiah confirms also that the kingdom age will not possess technology, but in particular that we will not possess technology for warfare. Isaiah says in Isaiah 2, verse 2, Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and he will render decisions for many peoples, and he will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning forks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. That's all in promise for the kingdom, okay? So in that age, everyone's going to be guided by the rule of God's law, sent out from Jerusalem, where the Lord is living in the temple. And God's rule will be so perfect and complete and absolute that sin will never have the potential to run very far. And in that kind of a climate, conflict never gets started. Violence never takes place because the roots of it are dealt with in the very beginning. The heart and the sin of the heart is put to rest by the Lord immediately. Wouldn't you love that? That's coming. And therefore, there's no need to prepare for war. No creative energy will be spent on the tools of war. People will, in fact, turn what they had as material into farming because that proves, again, it's an agrarian lifestyle. You need to farm. And no one's training for war. For a thousand years. That detail explains a couple of things that up till now have been kind of hard to understand in what Ezekiel has said. First, it explains the defenselessness of Israel. That makes perfect sense now, right? There'd be no reason for them to have defensive measures. Nobody's got any weapons. No one's learning warfare. No one's even thinking about warfare. For a thousand years. Secondly, it explains the curiosity of all of those other nations when they pondered Gog's invading army. Truly, an invasion like this is completely unprecedented and unfamiliar to anyone who's lived in the kingdom. No one has seen such a thing for a thousand years. No one's even contemplated it. No one trains for it. It it makes no sense. I mean, they're sort of seeing it. They can explain it to themselves. They know what's about to happen. But why? What are you doing? That, That statement in that verse doesn't make any sense when you take it out of that context. Now, but I just created a problem that you want me to solve if you're paying attention because you're thinking, okay, well, if the Lord's rule can prevent such uprisings and warfare, then how is this war even possible in the kingdom? Remember how I said the chapter started? Verse 4, the Lord says, this is his war. He starts it. 
and does so by bringing these armies out to attack. He instigates it so that he can defeat it, obviously. And I just created a new problem for you, if you're tracking with me on this. The new problem is the Lord says in his own word that he never tempts anyone into sinning. And yet, what we just see here is the Lord instigating, or seemingly instigating, Gog's sin. James says in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So the Lord has taken credit in this chapter of Ezekiel for instigating Gog to undertake a sinful act. But we know the Lord doesn't tempt people into sin. So the Lord is saying something. He's saying he appointed these events by his sovereign will. He set the timing of them. But that still begs the question, how did he bring them to pass in the heart of Gog without directly tempting Gog? You know where you find that answer? Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. Now I want you to notice that. It's not a war. It's the war as if you would know the war of Gog and Magog. That number of them is like the sand of the seashore, he says in Revelation. Or we might say like a cloud over the land. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Do you know how this battle ends according to what we're going to read here in a minute? I'll give you one guess. So the Lord determines the manner and the timing of this war. Absolutely. By deciding the date of Satan's release. By deciding when to release Satan, he sets all the other events in motion because Satan does what Satan does. And Gog does what Satan tempts. Satan's bound for a thousand years. His absence made that thousand years peaceful and all the nations at rest. By the end of the age, the Lord has released Satan now for a time. And have you ever read that in Revelation 20 and wondered to yourself, why does he let him go? Now you understand why. Ezekiel is telling us that the Lord has saved Satan for this moment. So that when he is let loose, he can display his faithfulness to Israel in defending them against a foe who has always been their foe, by the way, even in earlier times, right? No matter how the attacks have come, even now with the things you see happening, who's really behind the scenes in all cases? It's always been the same actor, right? So to reveal his glory to Israel and to the other nations in showing how he will defend Israel, he needs an adversary to carry out the plan. He lets Satan loose and there you go. It's also worth noting that the only two places in the entire Bible where the name Gog and Magog are associated as leaders of a war, is in Ezekiel 38 and in Revelation 20. And that connection, I would argue, by itself, demands our attention and an explanation. Now those who would say this battle happens, for example, in this age, not in the kingdom, they would tell you that this connection is merely foreshadowing, that is, the Gog of Ezekiel is a foreshadowing of the Gog of the end of the millennium. But there's nothing in the text to suggest that. And in fact, the way Revelation 20 is written, it does the opposite. It indicates this is the same Gog and Magog of the war that we've already heard about in Ezekiel. And when you look at all the similarities, I think the connection is obvious. In fact, John mentions Gog here in Revelation 20 with no explanation, as if you already know who he's talking about. That brings us to the second major purpose the Lord has in bringing this war to pass. Notice verse 16, the Lord says that through his defense of Israel from Gog's attack... He says, the nations may know the Lord. 
That is, the Lord will be sanctified, he says, he will be set apart as holy by the other nations in their view of him when they witness how he defends Israel. So I want you to take another look at your chart for a second, if you have it in front of you. Note that chapter 39, which is next week, note that that shows how the Lord is to be glorified among the nations in parallel with what follows in chapter 40, which is how he establishes his glory among Israel specifically, right? First to the nations, then to Israel. Well, to Israel, we know that he does that by dwelling among them in a fabulous temple unlike anything the earth has ever seen. All right? And that's, 30, that's 40 all the way to 48. That's how many chapters he devotes to just how he will set himself up in his temple of glory in Israel. But for the rest of the world, what is he going to do? He's not living among all the nations. His glory is projected to them by how he defeats this invading army. And we see it right here in verse 16. He says, this will be so that the nations will see me, sanctify me, know me. It's all about a display to the rest of the world. He will orchestrate the conflict so that the other nations of the world will see this. Remember, they've had no experience with warfare. This will blow their ever-loving minds to see an invading army and to see God respond to that in such a supernatural way. And as they do that, they will understand that God is God, the God of Israel, the protector of them, sanctifying his name. So all the signs I've tried to show you as I've gone through the text to this point, all of them in my estimation point to this invasion happening during the kingdom as the culminating event of the kingdom, the last event of the thousand years. Verse 17, we move from there. Thus says the Lord God, Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, and all the creeping things that creep on the ground, and all men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood I will enter into judgment with him, and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. When John says in Revelation 20 how that battle ended with fire coming down on them, here you see it. So he reminds at the beginning of that passage, he reminds Gog that Jewish prophets in the past had told that this would happen and predicted the outcome. And some would look at these words and say, well, it's, it's a circular reference. It's an eponymous reference. It, it basically, Ezekiel is saying, I'm the one who did that warning. I don't see that. In fact, that conclusion is recursive in a way that you almost, if ever, see Scripture doing. It doesn't make any sense. I think a better conclusion is Ezekiel, the Lord speaking through him, is referring to prophets that preceded even him who said these same thing. Well, if you look for those things, you do find them. You do find parallels. For example, in Psalm 110, you read this, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right? The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Isn't that interesting? Christ rules in the midst of his enemies. And then verse 3, The people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Do you remember what we heard in Revelation 20 about how the army will come up? It will come up to a broad plain, a broad country. It says here, he will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Verse 7, he says, he will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. So Psalm 10 would seem to describe a war, certainly in the time of the kingdom, because Jesus is said to be ruling with a scepter from Zion. In a time of such as that, he will have to rule over enemies and crush them in a battle. Clearly a reference to the end of, of time. That was written in Psalm 110. So that's an example of where you can say, as Ezekiel did, that others have prophesied about this very thing happening and about the loss of that man. So the Lord says he will show his might in defeating Gog. He uses an earthquake. It's so severe the entire earth shakes. Everything living on the earth is shaking. Mountains will fall to the ground the world over. Every wall, and I guess that would refer to the structures of homes and the like, everything falls down. It's a true calamity of biblical proportions, by definition. And some of the scale of these things cause people to look at this and say, oh, this has to be part of tribulation. Because there again, you see similar catastrophes, right? Again, I'll tell you why in 39 that's not plausible. But you have a planet-shaking earthquake destroying pretty much every structure on earth, it seems. That's just a prelude to the army's own destruction. He turns, it says, their swords of the invading army against themselves, against their brothers. Now remember, there's only one group of people here with swords. It's the invading army. There's no defensive army in Israel. So when you hear about them turning on themselves, we're talking about the army itself killing itself in confusion that God creates. We've seen God do this in similar ways in prior days in the times of Judges and 1 Samuel. And then it says the Lord settles the matter entirely with hail and fire and all the rest, right? As God alone can do, supernaturally. For the first time in the entire thousand years of the kingdom, you have warfare and you have bloodshed, and it's all come to pass in a moment. And it leaves the earth pretty much a wreck, which is our key to know this is the last event of the thousand years because we're ready to move on to something better after that. The effect of this move, this whole event, is that God magnifies himself, sanctifies himself, makes himself known to all the nations. All the world knows that he is the one. Now, that raises a new question, I think. And the question is, why is he working so hard for the world to know that he's Lord? This is the kingdom, after all. Isn't that self-evident? Well, you've probably made some assumptions, if that's your thought, and those assumptions won't prove to be true. All the world and the kingdom does not know that the Lord is the one. Remember the earlier nights I've taught on this when I said that in this age you have people of unbelief. If you're new tonight and you haven't heard this before, don't let it rock your world. Uh, It's simply the case that as the kingdom starts, everyone on day one is a believer. And for those who've come out of this age, we show up in glorified bodies. We can't marry. We can't have kids. We're not going to die. We don't have sin, right? But there are those on earth at the end of tribulation who have survived through it. They're believers and they haven't died yet. So they're still in the bodies we have now. And in that day, the Bible makes clear that they walk into the kingdom. There's no need for them to die. There's no resurrection because they haven't died. So they don't get new bodies. They're not in glorified form. They're simply believers enjoying the kingdom in a natural body. And as a result, they can marry. They can have kids. And it's that population of natural believers that come in on day one that repopulate the earth with natural people. Natural is the Bible's word for descended from Adam with original sin. And having original sin, just like we do today, two believers have a baby. Is the baby automatically a believer? Of course not. 
So you end up with generations of kids being born, some of which come to faith, some don't. The world gets populated again. It's the fact that there is unbelievers living in the kingdom, which is why we need rule. That's why you rule. That's why Christ rules. That's why we rule with Him. For if everyone was glorified, no one would sin. If no one sins, you don't need rule. Everybody's doing what's right all the time on their own. So the whole nature of the kingdom is Christ ruling until He has put all enemies under His feet. Which means it's a time of very interesting dynamic. A kind of two-sided nature of humanity. Glorified people, we don't glow, we don't levitate, we don't walk through walls. We're like Adam and woman. Beautifully created without sin. Living without death because we have no sin. But next to us is a person that looks and acts very much like us in the sense of humanity. The difference is they're natural. They have sin and they are going to die or they need to come to faith. And we've talked about that here in past weeks. But the short of it is, you have a world in which there's these two-sided nature of humanity, but to the eye of each, it doesn't appear as though one of us is different. And you might say, well, we'll be living forever. The person who dies doesn't know that you live forever. All they know is you're alive when they're there and they die before they see what happens to you. You're starting to take assumptions out of this world and move them into the next and you have to distance yourself a little bit from that and say, well, just how different would life have to be under those circumstances? There will be those who are glorified. There will be those who are not. And for those who are not, there will be some, and maybe many, around the world who are unbelieving. And why is unbelief possible in the kingdom? For the very same reason it's possible now. Jesus won't be personally visible. We'll learn this in a later chapter of Ezekiel. But he dwells in the temple perpetually, out of sight. He doesn't walk the earth. He doesn't visit the local Starbucks and sit down with people. He's sitting in the Holy of Holies, so he's on this mercy seat. He never leaves. All right? And as a result, faith is required. Faith is the confidence in things unseen. You don't hope in what you see, right? You hope for what is unseen. People will have to believe that there is a king, a creator God, in that building who has made everything. And apart from faith in him, you cannot have eternal life. So the world will operate differently, yes, certainly from what we know now, but to the one who has been born into that world, that's just normal. And once again, they have to put their trust in the word of God if they're to believe what they must believe. Because the only difference between unbelievers in the kingdom day and unbelievers today is where they are in the timeline of God's program. Think about it. Today, if you come up to an unbeliever with the word of God and you tell them, that today you sit in history between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And in the first coming, this happened. And in the second coming, this will happen. And you need to have faith in him, otherwise this will happen to you. Right? And we tell them the whole story. But can you offer them proof of any of that? The Bible is your proof, but if they don't believe that, where else would you go? There's no other way to take it. There's no other proof. It's all faith. Right? They either believe what you're telling them or they don't. Now, in the kingdom, fast forward. You're going to have believers. You're going to have unbelievers. You're going to have the Word of God. And you're going to tell an unbeliever that they sit in their time of history after Christ's first coming and His second coming, and that the world they see now is a result of His second coming, and He sits in that building over there. But once again, you'll have no proof. 
you won't have any way to prove to them the history that preceded because the world you're going to be in there will have been so transformed by Christ's second coming that there isn't going to be a historical basis for you to show what life was like beforehand. It'll have gone through a tribulation, a remaking into a new and better world. I mean, the past is so distant from where you are at that point in history. Here again, it's faith alone. The only difference between where they are and where we are today with an unbeliever is where they sit on that path. But otherwise, it's the same situation. And so, unbelief in that day is just as likely as it is today because belief in that day is on the same basis that it is today. So in chapter 38, what the Lord does is bring the war to an end abruptly and dramatically. It serves His purpose in demonstrating to an entire world of people brought up under a thousand years in which there was no war that God is in fact real, His power is real, and that He is defending the Jews just as His word said He would. They'll have Ezekiel to read for a thousand years. We just don't know what they're going to believe. Right? Revelation as well, and so on. But more of that book will be history than it is for us. All right? In Revelation chapter 20, we hear this is how God brings the kingdom to an end, in conjunction with this war. Verse 7, When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Now here's where it goes from there. At that point, he says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them, that is, for heaven and earth. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the end of the kingdom culminates with a war precipitated by the release of Satan, comes to a rapid conclusion when God judges, and then we move straight out of the kingdom and period into the final judgment of all those who have ever lived who are not believing. Satan is judged with them. He is thrown into the lake of fire. And at the end of judgment for sin, you see Hades thrown in, And that's the holding place for the dead. And death is thrown in. They both personified there. They're both not actual human beings, right? The the idea is simply that as Satan goes into his eternal end, the products of his work go with him. Without Satan, no sin. Without sin, no death. Without death, no need for judgment. So there is this putting away of all of that chapter of history because Satan goes away. And it opens up the opportunity for the next chapter. To end tonight, I want to... Uh, complete this thought on what God is doing and why all of this happens with this explanation that Paul gives us out of 1 Corinthians 15, which is somewhat cryptic until you see it from this perspective, and then it makes perfect sense. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, speaking about the same period we just covered. He says, verse 24, Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection to him. 
When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. All right. In that passage, what Paul is doing is explaining, in, in all of 15 there, he's explaining the orders of resurrection and what God does through resurrection. And he gets to verse 24 in that chapter, and he says, then comes the end. And in my English translation, it says, then comes the end. But in, my, in, in actual Greek, the word comes is not there. In the actual Greek, it simply says, then the end. All right, then the end. And what Paul's doing there is he's brushing over a bunch of details because he's on a certain point. But what he just did is he jumped to the end of the kingdom. So he says, and then the end, meaning the end of the kingdom, and more than just the end of the kingdom, the kingdom itself is the end of a period of history on this physical planet. And by some people's estimation, the Bible can count about 6,000 years of history, more or less, to about now, give or take a few hundred years maybe. And the kingdom's a thousand years. It's very interesting if you do the math there and you realize, well, we're coming up on a perfect 7,000, aren't we? If you take 6,000 without Jesus on the earth and 1,000 with him on the earth, the numbers make sense now because 6 is the number of sinful man. 7 is the number of perfect completion. So you'd be, that number system would seem to suggest, if we're right, that God is saying, for 6,000 years you guys get to rule in sinfulness. You see where that left you. I'm going to put my son in place and rule for 1,000 years in perfection. And now you'll see what it looks like when he rules with a rod of iron, when he puts all enemies under his feet, where justice is done all the time. The contrast will show God and justice, man and sin. 6,000 verses 7. Okay? And Paul says at the end of that period, at the end of the thousand years, he says that he gets into, okay, then what happens next? Elsewhere in, in uh, Revelation 20, we heard what happens at the end, right? We take everyone, we judge them, Jesus does, puts some away, us, you know, obviously aren't in trouble, everyone else is, death goes away, Hades goes away, Satan goes away, he's just sort of checking off, okay, we're done, we're done, we're done, we're done, we're done, we're done, right? Finished. Verse 24, Paul says, okay, when the kingdom ends, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24, he says, Christ hands all authority back to the Father. Now, in the text as we read it, there was a bunch of pronouns, which made it a little harder to follow all the people, the actors in the Godhead. Let me replace the pronouns with the proper names of the Godhead, and listen to how this flows in, verse, in chapter 15. He says this, verse 24, Then comes the end, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the Father, when the Father has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For Jesus must reign until the Father has put all of Jesus' enemies under Jesus' feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For the Father has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. But when the Spirit says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that the Father is accepted who puts all things in subjection to Christ. What he's saying is not everything is put in subjection to Christ, just everything except the Father. Obviously, the Father doesn't subject himself to Christ. That's what Paul said. And then in verse 28, he says, Then, when all things have been subjected to Christ, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the Father who has subjected all things to him, to Christ, so that God may be all in all. So, that's fascinating insight into the distant prophetic plan for creation. That after Christ's second coming on earth, he sets up a kingdom, he rules over humanity, he presides over us with no objection until the last enemy is let loose. Why is he let loose at the end? Because if he had been let loose at the beginning and crushed at the beginning, you wouldn't have a thousand years because the last thing to be defeated is death. 
So death is waiting till the end to be defeated so that we can enjoy a thousand years of the kingdom. And then we have that little loose end that God has to fix. He lets Satan out, and then he thinks, you know what, I can put this to good use. Why don't we let him out, create an invasion, I'll show my faithfulness one more time, and then we're all done. Wipe Satan out. Now we have all the judgment that follows. And then the very last thing is Christ now, having done all that God appointed for him to do in judging the world perfectly, Christ has said, I'm done, Father. Death has been subjected to me. There's no more enemies. And then at that point, there's no more need for rule. Like I said, if we didn't have enemies in the kingdom, we wouldn't need to rule. And so at that point, victory being won, the purpose of the kingdom having been fulfilled, Jesus gives his authority back to the Father, and at that point, it says God becomes all in all. It's not clear exactly what that means, but I'm going to give you a suggestion. The simplest explanation is that the manifestation of the Godhead into the creation has been through three persons for purposes of the creation, It always is three persons. God is not changing his nature. He's always been three persons. He always will be. But how he manifests himself to his creation seems to change after the kingdom. He no longer needs to manifest himself in three persons, though he is still three persons. But as we understand Revelation 21 and 22, where it describes the thing that follows the kingdom, the new heavens and new earth, God in that description doesn't seem to be called out in persons, even though we know they exist. He seems to rule from one place, all three members of the Godhead, there together ruling without distinction at that point anymore for our sake. Keep in mind, I'm not saying the Trinity goes away. I'm saying it stops operating independently. It's just all in one. God becomes all in all. There's no need anymore for the distinction because there's no more enemies. There's no more uh, delegating, if you will, of, of authority within the Godhead. They are all in all. That's my best assumption or best explanation of what I see in what Paul is saying, free to come up with a better one. You know, the further we look down the path of God's prophetic plan, the fuzzier things get, by, I think, by God's design. So I'm not going to stake a whole lot of assurance to you on the stuff that's at the very end. All right. So that's what we've seen now in chapter 38. We see God showing Israel at a point in history yet to come that he's faithful to his promises concerning peace and security in the land. He uses Satan as his instrument to create the apparent harm, the apparent threat. And then he uses his power to put Satan down, putting an end to the kingdom. If you put these events into a timeline other than the kingdom, you've got a whole lot of explaining to do to me, because I, I can't see how you're doing it. All right, let's go to prayer, and as always, some Q&A. Dear Father, give us some time to just sit and rest in these things, Father, and, and walk them through again in our minds as you would appoint, and help us understand them as best we can. And as uh, academic or as distant as some of these things may seem to us right now, Father, because they're in your word, we must assume there's something good for us to do in, in knowing them now. And that may be the biggest struggle for some of us, Father. Even if we accept what we hear without question, and it seems right to us as well, nonetheless, Father, what are we doing with this? Why is it in our knowledge now? We glorify you for it. We praise you for it. And that alone is reason enough. But can we do more with it? Show us how. And in the meantime, Father, let it strengthen our love for you and our anticipation of your, of your son's return for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.